This episode of New Politics was recorded on the 8th of June, 2021, and produced on the land of the Wangal people. Welcome to the New Politics Podcast. In this episode, another lockdown caused by problems in the hotel quarantine system, more media intimidation coming in from conservative governments, and the wild beast of the New South Wales Labor right can it be tamed in time for the next election. I'm Eddie Djokovic, editor of New Politics. I'm David Lewis, literature advisor to Richard Dawkins. So just an update for people living in Sydney. Our new book, Politics, Protest, Pandemic, is now available at Glee Books in Glee Point Road and Better Read Than Dead in King Street, Newtown. Now, these are two of the best bookshops in Sydney, so of course they're stocking our new book. We are trying to get the book into other bookshops around Australia, but because we're independent journalists and publishers, it does take a little while to get that happening. We, we've got to spruik ourselves, sell ourselves, sign a few dodgy contracts and seal the deal. It's a little bit like politics, really. If you are worried about going out and catching the coronavirus or if you haven't received your vaccine yet, you can still get our book through our website, newpolitics.com. Or get it from Amazon, Booktopia, and a wide range of other bookstores as well. I'd suggest too that if you want to um, buy from your local bookstore and it's not there, most bookstores will order it in for you. So you might try that too. There's another continuing lockdown in Victoria, but this time around, there's no one else to blame except for the federal government. But there are still problems within the hotel quarantine system. The vaccination rollout program has been so slow that it's bordering on negligence. There are now aged care workers in Melbourne who have contracted the coronavirus and passed it on to residents in aged care homes. The latest outbreak in Melbourne was caused by a breach in South Australia. And we have to keep repeating this because a few thick journalists out there are just not getting the message. The breach originated in South Australia. And that's where a traveller in hotel quarantine caught the virus through aerosol transmission from a nearby hotel room, travelled with the virus from Adelaide to Melbourne, where it was spread to family members and others in the community. So it's a breach in South Australia that caused a lockdown in Victoria. Since November last year, there have been hotel quarantine breaches in every mainland state across Australia and 20 altogether. Scott Morrison and the Health Minister, Greg Hunt, they keep suggesting that this is not really a problem, saying that the hotel quarantine system has been 99.9% effective, which is not actually the case anyway. Epidemiologists claim that it's only around 70%. But whatever the figure is, these breaches have caused millions and billions of dollars of damage to the economy over the past seven months. Now, David, to me, logic suggests that if issues in hotel quarantine are causing these snap lockdowns all across Australia, and if hotel quarantining is a federal government responsibility, then the federal government should do something about it. The Victorian government did send a proposal to Scott Morrison about four or five weeks ago to build a quarantine system in Melbourne based on the successful Howard Springs facility in the Northern Territory. And the government recently did agree to a memorandum of understanding. But with this government, you can never be sure that something is going to happen until it actually starts happening. And it has refused to accept the request from the Queensland government to build a quarantine centre. It's also giving mixed messages to the New South Wales government. It's over 15 months since the pandemic commenced. These quarantine centres should have been already in place, but to postpone them even further seems to be a dereliction of duty. And it's really hard to work out why there is a delay here. One of our listeners who's a senior lawyer I know that we have a few fairly senior lawyers, SCs and even judges and magistrates who listen. They may be able to correct me on this. I'm stepping outside my expertise a little bit. I suspect that there might be a massive class action against the federal government. I also wonder if they'll do it against people like the Victorian government who have had to deal with quarantine which is not a state issue. It's one of the few things the Constitution's absolutely clear about. Quarantine is a federal issue. For the Victorian government and the Western Australian government and the Queensland government to take it on is outside their jurisdiction. So we're in some really unprecedented legal grounds here. 
we're in a time of crisis. Uh, there's a pandemic on that's relatively unprecedented in many ways. But the federal government is not, at least technically, incapable or unable to do this duty. So I wonder if the High Court is going to get involved at some point down the track. Again, if one of our listeners who's more knowledgeable than me on this stuff has clarification on that, we'd love to hear it. But I just can't see how the federal government can keep ignoring the Constitution in in the way that it has. And of course, if there are advisors to the Attorney General who are able to point as to the advice that they're getting as to how they can shovel it onto the states legally, we'd be more than happy to hear that too. I just can't see it. But we are in very unprecedented and strange times. And on the face of it, I can't see how the federal government is able to avoid this type of thing. And of course, when they do it, they tend to not do a very good job of it either. And that, that's been a lot of the problem. And there's been so much mixed messaging about the vaccination program. We were told that Australia is at the front of the queue when it comes to the amount of vaccine doses. Now we're somewhere at the back of the queue. We were told that it was very important to have vaccines implemented as soon as possible. And then the Prime Minister said that it wasn't a race. And now it seems that the race is back on again. But, you know, politically we can see why the government is eager to slow all of this down. The amount of agreements and promises that were made by the government made it seem like there were 500 million doses available in Australia, but the reality is quite different. It's nowhere near that amount. And it seems that there's shortages of vaccines in Australia right at this point of time. And if, if there are problems with supply, well, well, you know, that's when the government starts blaming people for vaccine hesitancy, or they start looking at other issues to to provide excuses for all of this. Now, we've mentioned this in some of our previous episodes, but it's obvious that the government wants to coincide the completion of the vaccination program with the date of the next election, whenever that is. So politically speaking, and that's not to say that it's a brilliant idea, but at least you can get an understanding of why the government is behaving in a particular way. But their reluctance on quarantine centres is actually quite puzzling to me. For the cost of a one-week lockdown in Victoria, when taking into account lost revenues and business support payments and other assorted expenses, that and that's been estimated to cost around $900 million for that one-week lockdown, or $900 million per week of the lockdown. And for the cost of the one-week lockdown, the federal government could have easily built state-of-the-art quarantine centres in every capital city around Australia. And if hotel quarantine breaches have caused lockdowns in every mainland state across Australia at huge cost to the community and to the economy, well, you'd try and do something about it, wouldn't you? Uh, We have the triumph of a group of people who don't believe in government. They believe that government should be dismantled. They believe that corporations should be left to run riot. The thing is, is this is flawed. Now, before our more uh, conservative listeners or more small government listeners jump up and down and say, oh, you just want socialism, in a sense, that's true. But in another sense, there are things that government don't do terribly well. But we've found that private does not work in this stuff. What government does do well is managing national crises, what it should do well, and what it has the capability of doing well when it's run properly, is managing crises like this, making sure that there's a uniform, fair and efficient rollout of assistance, whether that be monetary assistance, whether it be infrastructural assistance, whether that be health assistance. The private system has failed and continues to fail. We've known, those of us who are sceptical have known neoliberalism has never really lived but it's been dead since at least 2008, probably before then, the GFC in 2008. Now, of course, in Australia, due to non-neoliberal policy, we didn't feel the effects of it. So there's still that hold on of, uh, you know, Australia didn't feel the effects of it. That's because we went back to a, what you might call a neo-Keynesian approach. Nonetheless, the neoliberal approach, the small government, the government shouldn't be involved the government is just there to cut taxes to the wealthy and kick into the poor crowd, is failing. Whether this has an electoral effect or not is a whole other question. One wonders at the patience and uh, apathy of the Australian people. 
Well, the pandemic has been with us for around 15 months and for most of 2020, the state premiers were guarded in their criticisms of the federal government. They were mainly talking about being on the same page. The only fight that they've got is with the coronavirus and not with the federal government. And they were maintaining that they were all, all in this together and there are things that have to be done rather than scoring political points. But that seems to have changed recently. And the acting premier of Victoria, James Molino, he was happy to push all of the responsibility back onto the federal government. There has been some pushback in the media as well, but it's pretty obvious that the federal government is at fault here. If we had, if we had an alternative to hotel uh, for this particular variant of concern, uh, we would not be here today. Uh, if we had the, vac- the Commonwealth's vaccine program effectively rolled out, uh, we may well not be here today uh, talking about these circuit breaker restrictions that we must impose to keep our community safe. And the other thing that I, I don't think he says is that Victorians know who is to blame. I've noticed that the Victorian Liberal opposition has gone very quiet. Even irresponsible loudmouths like Tim Smith have been very quiet over the last few weeks because they don't want to attract attention to themselves and to their federal colleagues. You did previously mention the failures of neoliberalism, and it's probably been failing for much longer than the past decade, but especially in the provision of social services and medical services during a time of pandemic. And more recently, there have been issues with the provision of vaccines by private for-profit providers in aged care homes. And the best way to describe it is that it's in a total state of confusion. First of all, staff in aged care homes were told that these private providers were going to arrive at their centres, provide vaccines to the staff and residents. And then that arrangement was amended to staff only receiving vaccinations if there were any leftover doses after all of the residents had had their doses. And then that was totally amended where aged care staff then had to go and get vaccines using their own arrangements. So that's one definite failure that we can report on. Aged care in Australia is primarily run by large private or corporatised groups. And at the start of the pandemic, aged care workers were restricted to working in one centre only. And that was to stop the spread of the coronavirus. But the aged care industry, they lobbied to remove this restriction. And it was quietly removed in November last year. And now this is another failure of uh, corporate and private interests dictating social services policy. Their argument was that having this restriction in place would reduce their staffing levels and it would cost them too much. So the private motive took precedence over the safety and well-being of the people in aged care. That restriction is now back in place. It was put back in last week, but it shouldn't have been removed in the first place. Now, all of these ongoing issues that are happening in aged care The Minister for Aged Care, Richard Colbeck, he's been under a great deal of pressure over the past few months for his failures as a minister. We suggested several months ago that rather than resigning, he should stay in his position and fix the problems. That was several months ago, but nothing has happened. He's become a dangerous minister and having him in the position is actually worse than not having a minister at all. There's probably time for him to go completely. He is typical of that type of person that that faction prefers. Someone to sit in the seat and vote without thinking about it, without debating, without questioning, without even necessarily understanding. He keeps getting asked questions like, how many health workers have been vaccinated? Now, that's something that asked on a random Saturday afternoon while you're going to the football might not be something you've got at hand. But going into an inquiry, it should be something that you'd be prepared for. You're Advisors should say, well, we know that this much has been done and th- there was a hold up here. And and then you can say to the inquiry, well, I'm advised, that, you know, and on it goes. I mean, I actually suspect that that's a question that a good minister would have to hand. So even if you were, and not for political reasons, just because if you were managing it properly, you'd know. If you were at the football and a journalist popped up and said, oh, how many have there been? You could say, well, there's been approximately blah, blah, blah. It's just good management. I don't know what Colbeck's background was. I suspect he's another one who failed at whatever he tried before going into politics and the party helped him out by giving him a fairly safe seat to shut him up, to keep him out. 
the Liberal Party has a lot of these people. I suspect Labor does too, and we'll be talking about Labor a bit later. But I struggle to see any competency in the senior ministry. I know that there are good backbenchers around in the Liberal Party, so I'm not going to say every Liberal Party member. I do know that there are people who work very hard for their constituency, and I'll always support that no matter what your party but in a pandemic, to have someone like Richard Colbeck in aged care ministry is negligence at best. The media has been saying for a long time that Morrison is a pragmatic leader and he's not wedded to ideological beliefs, but a pragmatic leader wouldn't wait 15 months to start building a quarantine centre or a series of quarantine centres, and they wouldn't wait five weeks before responding to a state government proposal to build those quarantine centres. So, Pragmatic Prime Minister would agree to something like this, this immediately, you'd think. They'd grab the shovel, get into one of those trucks that Morrison likes to have his photo opportunities in and start building right now. And I mentioned this before, but why he's not doing this is quite perplexing. And, you know, this is hypothetical. If you did have a Prime Minister who wanted to spread the coronavirus, and I'm not suggesting that Scott Morrison wants to do this, but this is exactly what you would do. You would resist building quarantine centres. You would slow down the rollout of the vaccination program and keep saying that it's not a race. You'd allow aged care workers to keep working in multiple locations. Now, I know that we'll be accused of scaremongering and anti-government bias, but when you lay out the facts in this way, it's hard to avoid that conclusion. I would really like to be able to say, look, we disagree with this bit and this bit, but here's a bit they did well, and this should be encouraged. There's just not a lot of that at the moment. Because, yes, it, we're in unprecedented times. It's a really hard job. There's a lot of decisions that you make that seem like the right one, but in retrospect were the wrong ones. All premiers and prime ministers and all world leaders have come across this. Mistakes have been made. Sometimes those mistakes have been tragic, but... In a lot of cases, particularly internationally, they've been understandable given the evidence at the time. Having said that, in Australia, we've had at least two governments who have been really grossly negligent. Now, I know that our list, some of our listeners are going to select two different governments to the two I would select, but that's okay. <laughs> We're not here to speak to everybody who agrees with us. But the federal government has been bordering on criminally negligent. Well, I might be a little bit naive about this, but I thought that the purpose of government was to put people first. People have to be at the front of what the intentions of, the, of any government actually are. And as you mentioned, we are in the middle of a pandemic. It's still going on. It's more than likely going to go on for some time. But there's other things that are coming into play as well. There, there's also the plan. Well, it's not a plan. It's been announced to remove almost 1,000 procedures from Medicare on the 1st of July. Medicare is under attack in the middle of a pandemic and essentially what this decision will do is it will funnel more money into the private sector, which is shown to be ill-equipped to deal with a pandemic. Now, funnily enough, in the 2016 election campaign, Labor released a guerrilla marketing campaign to accuse the Liberal Party of wanting to destroy Medicare. And the media at that time claimed that it was a Medi-Scare campaign. And, five, you know, five years later, what Labor claimed back in 2016 is turning out to be quite true. It's in the uh, IPA platform. And the federal government travels very closely to the IPA. There's a lot of IPA members. Dismantle Medicare. For whatever reason, they hate public health. Now, I know that its detractors would say it's very expensive that there are more efficient ways than having this huge bureaucracy that just shovels out money to the states, uh, that private enterprise makes it fairer because, you know, everybody pays the same amount for everything. And if you don't need it, you don't pay anything, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. All of those are furfies and, and nonsense. The private system is terrible for any health, education, law and order, public infrastructure, public transport. In some of those cases, you may work hand in hand with private people to provide a service because the privates are there. Even then, you've got to be careful. It's really about the ultra wealthy getting more money. And when you look at the network of who owns what in Australia, and I know that there's people there thinking I'm now starting to make my tinfoil hat. I don't think there's any more to it than how do we make as much money as we can? We cut wages, we cut taxes. Where people like the federal government come in, they start to run the services down. So by removing money from them, by cutting budgets, 
and then saying, oh, look, it's obvious that government can't afford to run these things properly. Look at how badly they're run. Whereas shoveling around the money, Australia has plenty of money. We can afford a Medicare system. We used to have the very best in the world. It's still very good. Dealing with the hospital system, there are some of the very best people who work in the hospital system, but they're led by overpaid, underworked, under-talented Lions led by lambs, as Wellington said of the uh, British army in the 19th century. It's true of the health system in Australia at the moment. Now, we do like to dish out the hyperbole and over-the-top rhetoric occasionally, but I did mention that Richard Colbeck is now a dangerous minister. I'm not, I don't think that we're going over the top to suggest that this is a government that is now dangerous, that people will die because of their neglect and lack of responsibility in vaccinations and the hotel quarantine system. And their neglect has caused 20 breaches in hotel quarantine and has caused lockdowns in Perth, Adelaide, Brisbane, Sydney and Melbourne. And this is all at the cost of billions of dollars in lost revenue and other related expenses as well. And Scott Morrison's response, recently he went off to New Zealand for a meeting that really didn't need to happen right now. And it was a little bit like the Japan trip that he made in November last year. It didn't really need to happen at that time. And he's off to a G7 meeting in Britain next week as well. Australia is not a member of the G7. It's only got observer status. So not exactly sure why he needs to go there. So he'll be away for a week and then he'll have to come back and do a 14-day quarantine when he returns. So he'll be at the lodge. There's more photo opportunities there again. And again, it's this constant issue that keeps hounding this government. They don't like to take responsibility for very much at all. I think he learnt from his his Hawaii holiday that people don't like him taking holidays. But if he can do a work trip, in inverted commas, Australia doesn't need to be at the G7. For the things that perhaps isn't Australia's interest, if the Consul General in England, in Britain, could attend on Australia's behalf, if it, or we have an internet, except, of course, they put in a substandard one, that you could sit in on those parts of the meetings, saving the accommodation, saving the 14 days quarantine, saving the airfare, lowering the risk of further transmission, etc., etc., etc. It's sad when Boris Johnson has outperformed you on things like vaccination. That's just pathetic. I wouldn't be wanting to go near a fairly successful country. And let's be fair, Johnson's a buffoon, but England has, or Britain has done a pretty decent job in getting the vaccinations out. They realised very quickly that the only governments that lost the last round of our elections were those that didn't handle or weren't seen to handle the virus well. Again, I'm not sure that they handled it brilliantly, but at least the vaccinations have gone out quickly and effectively and despite Van Morrison and Eric Clapton's uh, misgivings, have been rather effective. Even Boris Johnson understood that, and Scott Morrison doesn't seem to understand it. You're listening to New Politics. You can subscribe to us on Apple or Google Podcasts, listen through SoundCloud, Spotify and Amazon Audible, or find us at newpolitics.com.au. Up next, government censorship and the intimidation of the media. I feel guilt, I feel guilt Though I know I've done no wrong I feel guilt, I feel guilt, I feel guilt Though I know I've done no wrong I feel guilt, I feel bad, so bad Though I ain't done nothing wrong, I feel bad I feel bad, so bad Though I ain't done nothing wrong, I feel bad I never lied to my life Open democracies depend on free and open access to information in the media But there's a few people in government who are not so keen on this idea the leader of the New South Wales National Party, John Barillaro, is suing Jordan Shanks, the political commentator and comedian known as Friendly Geordies, for allegedly posting vile and racist videos about him. The former Attorney General, Christian Porter, he launched a defamation case against the ABC, which he decided not to proceed with just over a week ago. But this has actually cost the ABC $780,000 in legal costs. 
Liberal Party Senator Sarah Henderson has recommended ABC journalists should be sacked for making political commentary on their social media accounts. And in actions that are more like an East German Stasi land than a functioning democracy, Liberal Party senators are monitoring the Twitter accounts of ABC journalists and recording which messages they are liking or retweeting and publicly attacking them for it. The ABC also recently enforced a ban on their journalists using the word apartheid in the context of the State of Israel, leading to this kind of statement. Um, prestigious human rights organisation Human Rights Watch found in its report last month that Israel is practising apartheid. It uh, is... To be clear, they talked about a form of apartheid. I mean, they weren't calling it an apartheid state. Hamish, if... Palestinian, Palestinian intellectuals, activists, lawyers have for years been recording and Israeli human rights organisations that Israel is a settler apartheid state. It is an apartheid state that preferences one racial group over another. It is infused in every single aspect of its legal processes, its ethnic cleansing, its depopulation processes, its military occupation, its brutal military occupation in the West Bank, in East Jerusalem, in Gaza. I think a form of apartheid might actually be real apartheid, but clearly this is an instruction that has come from the federal government. But there are many coalition members of parliament and their affiliated friends at the Institute of Public Affairs who claim to be champions of free speech and keep going on about political correctness gone mad. But when the agenda doesn't suit them, they're very quick to close everyone down who disagrees with them. Yeah, free speech is what we want to say. Everything else is should be shut up. Peasants, go away, your, your opinion is not important. Greg Sheridan basically wrote an article saying that if you disagree with the Israeli government and Benjamin Netanyahu, you're anti-Jewish, which is a leap in logic that breaks down in so many ways. Is he saying that all Jewish people are corrupt? I hope he's not, and I certainly don't think that's the case. I think you it's very possible and quite natural to not like a government's action and yet be totally accepting of the people and the culture and even the the country behind it. Someone said that they should do an audit of ABC journalists who like or who comment on Liberal Party comments. And, you know, I think that's right. And of course, when you hit like on a tweet or Facebook or Instagram, it's not always because you like it or even agree with it. It's because, oh, that's something interesting that I might come back to. This will save it and I can come back to it later and do a story on it. Most journalists have likes and retweets and shares aren't necessarily endorsements and are not endorsements of the company they work for or the corporation they work for. And I think that's a fair thing. You can be quite critical of a government as a journalist and still vote for them. That's not even a contradiction. That's just the way it is. If, if we liked everything, again, seat warmers like Sarah Henderson, really need to be taught ethics. <laughs> well, the ABC, like any other corporation or any other business, they, they've got guidelines about what employees can and can't say on social media. So it seems like it's unusual for it's an unusual step for Sarah Henderson to, to make that ABC journalists should be sacked for doing these sort of things. And she, she was actually a journalist at the ABC before she entered Parliament, and she's actually won a Walkley Award as well. So she understands what it's like to be a, a journalist. Her, her other big issue was with Laura Tingle as well. She's the ABC political reporter about posting a Twitter message where she said, We grieve the loss of so many of our colleagues to government ideological bastardry. Hope you are feeling smug, Scott Morrison. That sounds like something that we'd put out on social media, but they could argue, well, ABC journalists shouldn't be putting out party political material or anti-government information like this, but she was putting out a comment in support of so many of her workers that had been sacked at the ABC, and this was in the context of funding cutbacks. Now, Laura Tingle is an employee of the ABC, and her organisation is constantly harassed and cut back by this federal government. So, you know, maybe she's got a right to say these sort of things on her social media accounts. There's other messages from ABC employees that have mentioned the Morrison government as fascist and the Prime Minister as an awful human being. So, you know, these are stretching the point a little bit. Now, that particular employee that did mention Morrison as an awful human being and the government as a fascist, he was actually sacked from the ABC. We've been threatened with legal action as well from various national party MPs. But, 
you know, a lot of this is intimidation. It's it's meant to silence people. It's meant to silence people that work in the media and, and journalists. And for a lot of journalists, this is a water off a duck's back. It doesn't really make that much difference to whether they report something in a particular way. But ultimately, this must have an effect on people. It wears you down. Laura Tingle is one of Australia's best journalists. I haven't agreed with all of her opinions. I'm sure she wouldn't agree with all of mine. She writes very well. She always is very clear and articulate about what she says. The ABC shouldn't be a government mouthpiece. It was never meant for that. The government funds it. But in this case, whoever pays the piper doesn't call the tune. Even liberal governments like the Menzies government and the Holt Gorton and McMahon, as much as ministers may have hated going on shows like Four Corners and This Day Tonight and Monday Conference and all the other shows that they used to have back then, and Q&A today, uh, Four Corners still, as much as they may dislike going on it, most liberal members would have said, oh, we need this, and that it's important to be held to account and that to put our point of view across in a fairly, not even hostile, but I'll call it hostile interview, at least gave us a chance to try and sell the policy. Since Howard, the ABC's been under attack. And again, we can go back to the IPA points where they want to privatise the ABC and SBS. And this goes back to Kerry Packer, who was open in his hatred of the ABC and thought, and he was wrong here, that this was audience that weren't watching Channel 9 and that it was a pointless competition and that you should just have private broadcast. So the other factor or the other issue within this field is that the ABC's Four Corners program, it actually, it was meant to air a documentary making the link between people who were close to Scott Morrison and and QAnon, and it's actually being put on hold. Depending on who you talk to, it's either been cancelled or was pulled by the ABC or it's just been postponed for a little while, even though this material has actually been publicly available for some time. Now, it did go back in our archives, and we actually dedicated a podcast to this exact issue in October 2019, as, as well as publishing an entire chapter about this issue in a book that we put out in, in January 2020. So, this information has been out there for a long, long time. Crikey also reported it, as did The Guardian, but Morrison now seems to be deeply offended by the allegations put forward by the ABC. Now, they're not actually allegations. Tim Stewart, this is the person who was a close friend of Scott Morrison. He's been photographed with Scott Morrison at Kirribilli. Tim Stewart's wife, she actually works with Jenny Morrison as, as an official companion. And now Scott Morrison has implied that he doesn't actually know Tim Stewart. QAnon is seen by many people as a cult and a dangerous cult, and it has some fairly radical opinions of how the world works. Whereas a lot of people will tolerate Morrison's religious practices because freedom of religion and the tolerance that Australians can have for religious practice. And I say this living a couple of blocks from Lakemba and knowing some of the experiences that people who are Muslim have suffered. But we do have somewhat of a tolerance for religious belief. I think even Scott Morrison understands that QAnon is beyond the pale for many people, that it's very damaging. It has cost jobs, it has cost families. It has cost friendships. It is very hard line. I think uh, the January 6th insurrection at the White House didn't help its cause at all. And I think Scott Morrison, knowing too that there is a new president, uh, is treading ve very carefully with how he's dealing with the new president. They would prefer a strong American alliance to a strong Chinese alliance. And I think Scott Morrison may even starting to be realised that the job of Prime Minister is a lot more than just sitting around claiming travel allowance and getting free stuff all day. There's actually important work that needs to be done from time to time and that that important work has real consequences. But to deny knowing someone who you've been documented knowing is idiocy. Well, we can look at, it seems like the Q, this QAnon issue is going to go on for some time. It might have been postponed for the time being, but let's see where that takes us. It's almost like the, the big Q is running the vaccination program in Australia. 
In, in other matters, Christian Porter has ceased his defamation case against the ABC, but he held a media conference where he told complete fibs about the case. He claimed that the ABC regretted publishing the article. Well, no, they didn't. He claimed that he'd won the case and the ABC had settled. Well, no, the complainant actually withdrew. And I'm just wondering if this could actually be a portent of the election date. Did Scott Morrison say to Christian Porter, look, shut this thing down, shut this defamation case down because we've got an election coming up? And and defamation cases, it's not like they're over and done within a couple of days or not. These, these have got the ability to run for months and months and months. And, and you can imagine having an election campaign and a court case where Porter is required to front up to court every single day of the week during the time that he's trying to win his own seat in Pierce and the government is trying to claim an election victory, well, that's just not going to happen. I heard a whisper, and I, I don't know that this is true, but I've heard a whisper that, in fact, he's lost pre-selection or will lose pre-selection. I know that there's a, a vociferous group of people in the seat of Pierce who are campaigning against him, and they're pointing to the seat of Warringa with Tony Abbott and Zali Stegall as a fairly important precedent. I'm certainly not saying that's a definite. I think Christian Porter may have a fight on his hands in his seat, the more he argued that he was innocent but refused to have any investigation, the more guilty he looked. Without an investigation, we can't say whether he was guilty. The story stacked up, though, and his uh, so-called victory, which reminded me of Kamikul Ali at the end of the Gulf War with the American tanks rolling in behind him saying, we have successfully defended Baghdad. <laughs> And it wasn't even a moral victory because he withdrew. He with and the only reason you withdraw defamation is, I suppose, a couple. One, you realise, oh, this is a bit much, and you grow up and you step back and you apologise to everybody and get on with your life. Mm-hmm. Or two, you realise you're not going to win. Well, it wasn't a moral victory. It wasn't a pyrrhic victory. It was a it was a moral loss and a pyrrhic loss at the same time. And the Labor Party and the Greens they're still calling for an inquiry over this. So politically, it might this entire issue might not be over for Christian Porter. The other factor is that many politicians are egocentric, of course, and that's that's why they end up sure. in politics. They want to be the centre of attention, and they are the centre of attention in that particular seat and in that particular community. But it's almost like they can't help themselves. So John Barillaro, he wants to shut down debate or shut down Friendly Geordies, but all this has done is given Friendly Geordies more publicity than he would have otherwise have received. And, you know, it's the same with Christian Porter. Like, he launched a defamation case when he sh- just should have kept his mouth shut. I, I don't, I'm don't. i not suggesting that it would have blown over, but he should have just kept quiet and hoped for it all to disappear. That And because he called a defamation action, he brought more attention to himself. Same with John Barillaro in New South Wales. Wales. And sometimes members of parliament should just keep their mouths shut, cop the commentary and criticism and just move on. That's what that's what Christian Porter should have done. And that's what John Barillaro should have done as well. It's uh, called the Streisand effect. I'm sure many of our listeners know what this is. But for those who don't, Barbara Streisand tried to sue Google because her house appeared on Google Maps. And she was worried about the lack of privacy and people being able to find a house. Now, I'll be fair, there's maybe 50 people in the world who this could be an issue for, and Barbara Streisand is certainly one of them. Unfortunately, she brought so much publicity to the house that everybody knew where her house was. Had she shut up, the normal procedures that they'd kept for her privacy would have held, and a few people might have found a house, but certainly a lot less than the hundreds of thousands who ended up looking at a house on Google Maps anyway. And this is what's happened to uh, John Barillaro, or Pork Barillaro as we call him in New South Wales, and it's what's happened to Christian Porter by starting these frivolous claims. I'm not sure you can, a politician can sue a comedian, and I know Barillaro is claiming racism. I can't comment on whether it was racist or not, but again, you're building some fairly lofty legal arguments that I think might be easily dismissed under the use of parody and comedy, etc., etc. I suspect that we'll have a very quiet, oh, Mr. Barillaro has decided to withdraw but again, we'll see. He, he might decide to go to court and he might even win. Stranger things have happened, but I doubt it. You're listening to New Politics. You can subscribe to us on Apple or Google Podcasts 
Listen through SoundCloud, Spotify and Amazon Audible or find us at newpolitics.com.au. Up next, the New South Wales Labor right starts up a new campaign to share in the spoils of defeat. There must be some kind of way out of here Said the joker to the thief There's too much confusion I can't get no New South Wales Labor has a new leader after the resignation of Jodie McKay. Much is said about how poorly the Liberal Party treats women within its ranks, but the Labor Party isn't immune from this sort of behaviour. The backroom men in the Labor head office have been pushing for Jodie McKay's removal for some time, and this follows on from the hatchet job done by the New South Wales Labor right on former member for Lindsay, Emma Hussar, in 2018, when they backgrounded journalists with false information about her and forced her to resign from politics altogether. The New South Wales Labor right faction has a different kind of men problem to the Liberal Party. It either shuns good performing women MPs or once all the guys have done as badly as they can, they turn to the women in the room to help. Labor only turned to Christina Keneally as Premier in 2009 after the backroom men such as Eddie O'Bead, Ian McDonald, Carl Batar and Mark Abib destroyed the Labor Party for a generation in state politics and federal politics. And the Labor Party federally and in New South Wales is still trying to recover from those days. The new New South Wales Labor leader is Chris Minns, and it seems like he's one of the leadership ever since he was born. Already in the past week, he's received more media coverage than Jodie McKay had received in the previous year. And it seems that the media is more prepared to promote a new leader who is more conservative, more right-wing and more Catholic than his predecessor. Now, our audience outside of New South Wales might not know very much about these people, but it's the influences of the New South Wales Labor Party that we're mainly looking at today. New South Wales Labor is a very strange beast. And as former Prime Minister Paul Keating once said, he said that a strong Labor Party in New South Wales means a strong Labor Party federally. But it also has the propensity to shoot itself in the foot and a tendency to prioritise sharing the spoils of defeat rather than concentrating on election victories. Now, these issues can't be resolved overnight, and I'm not suggesting that other parties don't have these sort of issues, but Labor's main struggle in New South Wales is how to keep a cover over all of these issues, keep them in check, and make sure that they don't surface until after the next federal election. It was insane. Men's lost to Jodie McKay. And I think, rightly, the world is changing. Uh, The male stale, pale stereotype doesn't do as well politically as as he used to. Jodie McKay lost one by-election, and it was a by-election in a very safe seat in which the National Party ran as an opposition in a seat that they'd had, had held since 1961, and that was an, an anomaly, and uh, before then since, I think, Federation had started. She shouldn't have been required to have stepped down. The interests that Chris Minns represents are also the interests of the mainstream media in Sydney. One of the things, too, you have to understand is the business and political and other interests that all intersect nationally. It's like that, but 50 times bigger in Sydney. It needs a total clean-out. Alan Jones, for example, demanding that an ad- a racing advertisement be put on the Opera House and that happening is one of the rare examples where you see this play out in public. More recently, Gladys Berejiklian lying to ICAC and not being made to step down was something that's extraordinary. It says a lot about the parlous state of the Liberal Party, but says a lot about how things can work in Sydney. Minns, I suspect, is supported at least by the people who like this type of status quo in a way that Jodie McKay never was. Why she never was is open to all kinds of debate. She's a woman, maybe. She wasn't up to the job, possibly. From what I saw of her, that didn't seem to be the case. She was in the wrong faction. She didn't know the right people. And this is stuff that Labor should have no part of. And the strongest Labor parties in New South Wales certainly stepped away from it. Bob Carr, 
remains our longest elected premier. He refused to talk to Alan Jones. He refused to deal with certain developers. He refused to do a lot of stuff. And on the other hand, um, the leader of the Labor Party who ran in the last election, who lost, promised to remove certain influences from places. And he lost. It's a very strange place, Sydney, in its corruption in many ways. I don't think Labor's going to win the next election and they should be walking it in. Well, Jody McKay, she really struggled to get any media ever since she became leader in April 2019. And she, she last year she only featured in 3% of articles on New South Wales politics in the Sydney Morning Herald and the Daily Telegraph, and that's compared to 97% for Gladys Berejiklian. Now, COVID or no COVID, this is a very difficult statistic to overcome. And it's also the same issue for Albanese, who's also from New South Wales. But it's, you know, you'd think that it's up to political parties in opposition to create the news and look for opportunities. It's difficult, but it can be done. Chris Minns has only been in the position of New South Wales Labor leader for just over a week. And already he's received more media focus and more attention than Jody McKay had achieved in the past two years. So it's quite a damning feature of the media in New South Wales. I'm sure that it's a similar situation in other media in other parts of Australia, but it's definitely an issue in, in New South Wales. It's not how you win elections. You know, this is loser behaviour. Of course, I, I hope I hope I'm wrong. I hope that Chris Minns is an outstanding candidate. It, when Liberals elect a new leader, I, I hope the same, and has the interest of New South Wales at heart and has the interest of the people of New South Wales at heart in a genuine way, not in a weasel word, mealy mouth way. He's got to act really quickly and do really strong things. And if he does, I will, I'll praise that too. Mm. Well, the New South Wales state election, that's almost two years away, so anything can happen in, in politics. So I think it's probably a little bit early to say that they can't win the next election or won't win the, the next election. But just back to Anthony Albanese, he's from the left faction of the Labor Party and he's only the second leader from the left for federal Labor since 1967. Julia Gillard was the other one. Albanese is tolerated from the New South Wales right at the moment, but I'm sure that if there was a viable candidate from the right, he'd be gone in a in a heartbeat. Tanya Plibersek is also from the left as well. Sometimes the New South Wales Labor right, it can't help itself. It's like it's more concerned about holding on to those personal fiefdoms within the party rather rather than achieving election victories. Now, I'm not suggesting that getting a, the election victories is not important to them. Of course it is. That's why political parties do exist. But sometimes those personal fiefdoms and those personal battles that are going on between various factions and various personalities within those factions, sometimes that's holding back the Labor Party in New South Wales. And there's some members of the New South Wales Labor right, they'd be more at home within the, the Liberal Party. And Within all political parties, there's always going to be some crossover between some of those MPs where you look at them and think, well, hang on, you should be in the other party, not this one. And some of those divisive Labor people, it's almost like they applied for membership to the Liberal Party, but somehow their membership form ended up on the way to the Labor Party. It was somehow made into a mistake, and then all of a sudden they're a member of the Labor Party. So New South Wales Labor, it's in a weakish position at the moment, and Weak Labor in New South Wales means weak Labor federally. And we don't want to fuel any leadership speculation because we'll get a lot of abuse out of that. And also because Anthony Albanese has been performing better in the past few months. But would Labor have a better chance federally if he could downplay the role of and the influence of the New South Wales right for the next election? Obeid, Tripodi, Costa, Abib, Bitar did so much damage to the Labor Party. And as you said earlier, we're still seeing these effects. And in New South Wales, we have currently the most corrupt and incompetent government that we've ever had. I know most of the premiers from and governments from Robertson in 1856 all the way through. So when I say this, I'm not, I'm not exaggerating. I'm, I actually do believe that it's more than Askin, more than Parks, more than Carl, more than Rand, more than Baird. All the, all the Liberal Party has to do is say Obeid, Tripodi, and people say, oh, yeah, they're really corrupt, aren't they? The damage that they did is incalculable, and it whispers into the federal sphere as well. 
and I think even into other South Australia can sort of say, oh, look at New South Wales Labor, these mob are the same. It seems to have broken in Western Australia who don't care what New South Wales does anyway. <laughs> and Victoria who want to be the opposite to New South Wales. I think uh, New South Wales is in a, a lot of problems because we have corrupt incompetence in the government and no viable replacement. And the right needs to be strong and capable. And when the right is strong and capable, Labor does well. Let's, let's be honest. We mightn't like it, but all the candidates to replace Anthony, and this is the interesting thing too, that people like Tanya Polibasek, Penny Wong, all from the left. And as you rightly pointed out, till there's a viable right candidate, Anthony is, is safe. Well, he should be safe for the time being. But federally, there are more leadership issues that are coming into play. Scott Morrison is now one of the more unpopular prime ministers ever. And his dissatisfaction rating is 43% according to the latest news poll. 54% of people are satisfied. But these are very poor figures to have so many people dissatisfied with your performance. Like these, are, these should be ringing the alarm bells for Scott Morrison. Now, you know, we have to point out that preferred prime minister satisfaction and dissatisfaction ratings are pretty much political vanity projects and window dressing, but they do actually mean something. And you know, it's been a constant question that's been put out in the media. Which leader will Scott Morrison be facing at the next election? And we turned that around recently to suggest that perhaps the better question might be which leader will Anthony Albanese be facing at the next election? But we, we might have to start considering the prospect that neither of these men will be leading their respective parties at the next election. So there's still a little way to go before we get to those kind of considerations, but it's something that I think we do need to ask. And just wanted to end with an update on the Biloela family that's been in immigration detention on Christmas Island for almost two years. The youngest of the two daughters, Thanika Muragupan, she's now in a Perth hospital with a life-threatening blood infection. She's only three years old and she had to wait for 10 days on Christmas Island before appropriate medical care was provided. Now, for a start, this family shouldn't be on Christmas Island. They should be in the community. And Australia shouldn't be holding three-year-old children as political prisoners. It's totally unacceptable. So I'm going to call my local MP, voice my disapproval about the situation and let them know that I'm not going to vote for them at the next election unless they release this family now. Now, I wasn't going to vote for them anyway, but that's beside the issue. They don't need to know that. But this is a situation that has gone on for far too long, and it's time to release this family. And, and I suggest that if there's anyone in our audience that feels the same way, that they should make contact with your local MP as well. The only real way that they'll respond is if they're likely to lose votes over this issue. It's a disturbing and despicable situation that's gone on for far too long, and it has to end right now. That's it for this new politics podcast. Thanks for listening in. If you'd like to support our style of journalism and commentary, please make a donation at our website at newpolitics.com.au. We don't beg, plead, beseech or gaslight you about journalism coming to an end. We just keep it very, very simple. If you like what we do, please send some support our way. It helps keep our commitment to independent journalism ticking along. I'm Eddie Djokovic. Thanks for listening in and it's goodbye to our listeners. I'm David Lewis. We'll see you next time.